You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. I am super soggy from camping in the rain, but uh, nice and dry <laughs> in the studio now, so uh, we'll see how this goes. We, Ironically, we have someone that talks about recording the elements, so I think uh, this is a good day to be soggy in the rain. It's uh, three-time returning champ Thomas Rex Beverly is with us today. Hey, Tom, how are you, sir? Doing great. So Tom recorded rain with us before. He's done deserts, and now we're going to talk about some glaciers and some ice. So where were you recording these glaciers and ice, Thomas? Uh, I went on a big recording expedition in Greenland in July, and then another trip in Norway in August. But most of the glacier recording was in Greenland. There's no no shortage of glaciers there. So take us through the prep, the inspiration, the whole reason for the journey in the first place. Yeah, basically, I was, I've was i been kind of fascinated by glaciers for a long time and basically was trying to start a new project that was mostly the theme of recording the sounds of disappearing glaciers. And I was interested to see just how much sounds the glaciers actually made because I thought the calving would be amazing, the big chunks of ice breaking off the, the tongues of the glacier. And it turns out it, it, it is, obviously, but, there's, <laughs> but there's, there's, there's a few other huge new categories of sounds that I didn't even think were there. And that was part of what was so fascinating. So... Um, but yeah, I've been fascinated by the Arctic for a long time and been to recording in Alaska and Iceland and some other places and just really like the far North in the summer. And so, um, was there for almost three weeks in July. So it was a big long trip and probably the most remote place I've ever been. So you're in a tiny little village of 200 people or so, and there's very, very few people on the Eastern side of Greenland. So there's only about 60,000 people in the whole, on the whole Island. And most of them are on the Western side of Greenland. Was that 16 or 60,000? About 60, 60, 60,000. Um, most of them live in Nuke in the capital, but yeah, in the whole Eastern side of Greenland, there's only a few thousand people and most of them live in one, one town. I flew from the U S to Iceland and then you take another flight over to this tiny old World War II era airstrip that's on Eastern Greenland. You land and you're in the little village with, um, 200 people or so. And, um, the guide I was working with was, he told me that I could record some of the sled dogs and I was like, oh yeah, that's great. I'd love to record some of those. And he greatly underestimated how many sled dogs there were because there was there's 200 people and there was 250 sled dogs in this village. And so basically every town, every little house has their own sled dog team. And that's like eight to 10 dogs or something. They don't really sound like dogs. They sound something between like a coyote and a wolf because they're pretty, they're very wild animals. They spend their entire lives outside and do a lot of real, real work pulling sleds and stuff. But basically what happens is you get this, like one of them will get set off and they'll kind of daisy chain through the whole little fjord. And by the end, you get this 250 wolf mega pack that's howling. (laughs) Oh, I was loving that, so. But yeah, the goals were... Um, to get to a really remote part of Greenland um, and then actually go out with some glacier guides and get on the glaciers and spend time camping out near them and to try to spend large chunks of time out in front of different sets of glaciers, specifically trying to record the calving and 
than trying to get out on the glaciers and explore to see what kinds of sounds were out there. And so you'd been out to Alaska before. How did that experience inform how you were going to prepare for the Greenland trip? Alaska informed it as far as remoteness and dangers of like grizzly bears and polar bears and that kinds of things. As far as my interest in the glaciers, the I didn't see as many glaciers where I was in, in Alaska, but the summer, last summer I was in Iceland and that was the first time I'd seen low altitude glaciers that ha- don't have any snow on them. And it looks like this crazy river of ice coming down the fjord yeah. and you can see all the colors and the crevasses and all these pieces of ice breaking up and everything. And so, but yeah, the, the polar bear danger is, is no joke. So some of the tactics that you take to stay safe in grizzly bear country and, and I mean, there's polar bears in Northern Alaska as well, obviously, but where I was, there was only grizzly bears and polar bears are a whole another level of dangerous. And so, um, that involves going out with guides and being prepared and the guide brings a gun and, um, doing various things to try to stay safe in polar bear country. But as far as glaciers go, I didn't really, didn't quite know what I was getting into. I didn't know how often the calving would happen. I didn't know what was going to happen out on the glacier. Hadn't actually, I'd done some climbing before, a little bit of mountaineering in a few places, but never actually been out on a glacier before. So I was just excited to explore and see what was going on. Never been around icebergs and boats and stuff. So it was just, it's pretty mind blowing for a lot of reasons. And any specific precautions you took regarding cold for your, your equipment and for yourself? Uh, cold, uh, it mostly because the, the sun's up pretty much 24 hours a day in Ju- in July. So you actually have pretty stable weather. It's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit all the time. Hmm. and sunny a lot of the time um, because the the Greenland ice sheet, like it's basically reflecting the sun all the time. There's no day or night cycle. So yeah, cold wasn't too much of an issue because there wasn't a huge swing. The most danger is if you got wet because the water's like 33, 34 Fahrenheit. And so the real danger is if you got wet or the boat had an issue because like you fly into Kulasuk and it's a little village of 200 people and then you take a two or three hour boat ride away from there where there's absolutely no people. <laughs> and so you're in a little boat that's maybe 20 feet long or something. And you're two or three hours from anyone else. And there's no, like, there's no coast guard or anything out there. It's, it's you and the, the glacier guide that I was with and the local hunter or, um, fisherman that's taking you out in the boat. And then as far as gear goes, it's not 40 degrees Fahrenheit is not really a problem for the recording gear. Cause that's still warm enough that if it's in a dry bag with the sun on it, like it's totally fine. Cause it'll be 60 degrees in the dry bag and batteries love that. Yeah. So I like you have a total fascination with being in the North, uh, in the summer. Uh, the big bummer about that is you don't get to see the Northern lights cause the sun's up all the time. So that's something that I want to see one day, but, uh, I've been to Norway, uh, in June for the basically 24 hour. I've been to Iceland. I've been to Alaska and I've been to Sweden, but I was pretty far South in Sweden. Uh, so, but a lot of those trips I did before, uh, I was doing a lot of field recording. So I, I haven't done a lot of recording, but what is overwhelming in a lot of these places is the silence. There's no trees with leaves blowing on them. So the wind doesn't really make much noise and, uh, there's no birds a lot of the time. Uh, like it is a dream to record in, in terms of, uh, extra exterior noises, but uh, that also means that you got to be on your game because uh, y- 
you got to get the mic in the right spot. There, there, there's nowhere to hide mistakes and stuff like that. I wonder if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. It's like if you go to Alaska or Norway or Iceland, like there's still grass, there's still trees. I mean, there's not many trees in Iceland, but like in Greenland, there's no soil because it's been glaciated so recently that like there's either rock or maybe a little bit of moss and like there's nothing. And so like there's occasionally some little dwarf birch trees or some moss in isolated places, but like, it's not like Iceland where you get a bunch of grass. It's not like a lot of other Northern places in Northern Canada or Alaska where you still have trees or anything. So yeah, it's definitely, it's really barren. There's very few land animals. Um, you basically have Arctic Fox and then you got the giant polar bear, but it's polar bears, more Marine bear. They spend most of their time out on the sea ice and yeah. So you have Arctic Fox, you have a little ptarmigan, um, which are pretty cool. They actually sound like these crazy little alien birds and they make these like fabulous clicks. I, I, I had a ptarmigan. Yeah. Ptarmigan's like a Arctic like grouse or it's like a little Turkey sort of. It's a little white bird. Um, I had one of those kind of come with one of my drop rigs, try to mate with one of the furries or something. It was just like doing a little doing a little mating dance in front of it or something. It just makes these fabulous, fabulous like articulated clicks that change rates and stuff. Yeah, there's ptarmigans, there's Arctic fox, there's um, quite a few seabirds that are around, but um, in general, it's really, really silent, like you said. And yeah, there's no foliage sound. Um, there's actually not a lot of wind, at least where I was, because the weather's so stable um, when the summer is up 24 hours a day. Yeah, almost all of the wildlife is in the water. And so there's tons of seal species and fish and tons of whales and lots of crustaceans and stuff as well. And so pretty much all of the all the wildlife is in the water. And so, yeah, when we went out by the glaciers, there's there's very few birds. Like Occasionally you'll get like a snow bunting that'll there that'll fly by or sometimes you'll get these eiders which are these really pretty ducks that make they make these down they they make down jackets out of the feathers and stuff but um yeah there's very few very very few amounts of wildlife and there was an unseasonally large amount of ice so i was hopeful of recording whales while i was there and so there wasn't supposed to be any ice and the amounts of sea ice has been going down a lot over the last um, couple decades and stuff. Like in Kulasuk, they used to be able to use the sled dogs for seven to eight months a year, like within like one person's lifetime in the last 50 years or so. And now they're down from seven or eight months of sea ice to about four or five months of sea ice. That's been the average in the last 10 years or so. But there happened to be a ton of sea ice when I got there, which was unfortunate for being able to recording, be able to record whales because the whales won't dive under the sea ice. And so they won't come into the fjords where I could record them. So that I'm, I'm scheming maybe another trip (laughs) to try to go back and record the whales. What kind of equipment did you bring? What was your kit? Uh, I had a lot. I had seven or eight record rigs recording 24 hours a day wow yeah i have i have two quad rigs six or so stereo drop rigs of various types and those are my main rig is a double mid-side sennheiser rig that i run off of sound devices mixbree 3 that's my main one but that thing like sucks batteries like there's no tomorrow and so there's a lot of a lot of doing this is battery management because i can only take like i had 10 of these USB-C battery bricks with me mm-hmm. you have to run a lot of rigs in order to record these glaciers because they don't do stuff very often it's like a slow motion thunderstorm over three over two weeks and so you you have to be recording a lot of stuff and so i was running my double mid side rig i had a quad 
quad rig with a with a Zoom F F six running. Um, I I had two Zoom F threes. I had a Sony D one hundred and then three Sony A tens. So and those are all running little lavalier mics that are running plug in power. A lot of those are Lom Uzi or Clippy mics because partly like you can run a a Sony A ten is this tiny little recorder that you can run plug in power external mics off. And you can run that thing for upwards of 10 days on one battery brick, which is pretty insane. And so like the battery consumption of plug-in power is like five volts or something versus 48 volts on um, the big Sennheiser mics. And so there's a lot of things that you can do where there was a lot of instances where I would take the boat out and I would go up to the side of a glacier and I'd actually drop a rig off and there were several rigs that I left for five days recording by themselves and that's part of the only way to get the calving because like some of these glaciers are the calving face is a mile wide or something like one side of the glacier sounds very very different than the other side it's almost like it's two different glaciers because if you even if you're recording the same event it'll sound completely different from a mile away yeah that was a lot of figuring out the acoustics of the space and figuring out different drop rigs that I could leave in different situations on different sides of the glaciers. I would normally keep my, my main double mid side rig that would be with me. And that would be recording some of the glaciers that were near our camp. Cause that one I can only run for 18 hours or so on one battery. Did the, did the guys help you with placement? It seems like it would be kind of a risk to put a drop rig somewhere where you're going to record calving and like have the ice face drop off with your equipment into the sea. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were, they were super helpful as far as pretty large tidal shifts as well. So you're like, you're concerned with the tide moving up and down. You're concerned with the calving waves because mostly there's no waves, but sometimes these like a biblical size thing will break off the glacier and then like, it'll create a pretty large <laughs> wave. And so you have to be aware of like, how big is that wave going to be? Or like, how much is the tide going to shift? If that iceberg breaks off when there's high tide, is it going to be able to swamp my rig? So I almost lost one rig to a calving wave because it was, it was too low in the water. And my guide was like, oh, it's, it's, it's most likely going likely gonna to be fine. Like, unless something biblical happens, like the, the rig will be fine. <laughs> and, then this, <laughs> and then something the size of a football stadium broke off this glacier. It was absolutely mind blowing because it was, we were actually in camp that day and we were camped like up on the side of the fjord next to this big glacier called the Canood Rasmussen Glacier. It's like, I don't know, maybe half a mile wide and has a, about a hundred foot calving face so like the different glaciers have different personalities as far as like some of them are more wide and not as high or some of them are a little more narrow and they have a taller face and so the canoe glacier has a taller face which makes for some better kind of impact sounds because the stuff will break off 100 feet up and it'll it'll go and it'll make a big gunshot sound and it'll fall down and boom and smack on the water and like some of the other ones have different characters depending on the shape of the ice and everything. But, um, yeah, we were in camp and we happened, I heard this rumbling start I was like, Oh, this one sounds, this one sounds different. And <laughs> I unzipped the tip and this thing, like the top broke off and then you hear the rumbling and it gets going. And then this whole slice, the size of a Manhattan skyscraper or a stadium breaking off. And what kind of happens with the really big ones, you have a, uh, some gunshots and some booms at the beginning. And then it's like you turned on Niagara Falls because most of it is like it's displacing the water.
it's 100 feet up out of the water, it means it has four or 500 feet down. And so that four or 500 feet down is actually like flipping and coming up in most instances. <laughs> and this whole, and you just get this, oh, this crazy roar that comes off. And it's bittersweet too, because this like this huge glacier is is retreating at a really fast rate. But then like there's just the like the awe and the beauty in this of seeing the sound. And so like some of the bigger events they last four or five minutes. Wow. And so like this huge thing, it's not fast. Like it's such a huge volume of ice that it comes off and it roars and it jumbles around, it cracks and it breaks and it pops and it pings. And then one of the coolest things that happens is it's broken off a whole bunch of slush. And so the slush fills the entire fjord. And when I say slush, it's like car-sized icebergs and stuff. They're filling the fjord and it's like half a mile wide. And what happens is there's all these big bubbles that are trapped in the ice. And so when the smaller ones all break off, the entire fjord starts to crackle. It's like you put ice in a glass and you poured Coke on it, that fizzly kind of crackly sound. It's like that times a thousand. So this whole fjord crackles with this electric kind of energy for like three hours. Everything about the glacier is super slow. The tales of the events can sometimes be multiple hours. Or like you'll hear a big piece break off a glacier that's way down the fjord, and you'll hear the boom. Four or five minutes later, the calving wave shows up. Wow. There's four big categories of glacier sounds that I found on this trip. You can describe it in thunder kind of language because it's, it's distant, it rumbles, and it booms, and it cracks, and it ripples. And So there's calving where a chunk would break off of the top and it would free fall and it would smack the water in a really boomy impact sound. the underwater iceberg sounds that a crazy amount of stuff happening underwater with the icebergs melting the third category is this thing i'm calling a kind of ice xylophone it's this melodic tonal kind of ice it basically happens out on the glacier if you have certain conditions and then you knock ice down into these very deep crevasses And then the fourth one is this kind of singing glacier sort of stuff that happens. It's basically like out on the glacier under certain conditions, you actually get droning pitches that you can hear. If you can find those certain size cracks, they have a stunning amount of variation. So like you come up to a crack and it'll sound like an alien language going like, and it'll do like all sorts of crazy stuff. 
And then you go to the next crack and it sounds like a motorcycle engine or something's going because it's basically water resonating through these weird shapes that have been formed by the ice even for 10 minutes or 15 minutes the water is melting the ice yeah so it's changing the sound as the water's flowing through there, but then the volume also changes quite a bit over longer periods of time. And the crack does weird stuff where it'll actually creak and move and you'll get these kind of like door creaking sort of sounds that'll happen occasionally. They're tricky to find. I'm making it sound like every crack sounds amazing and it's not like that at all. You have to <laughs> do a bunch of whole bunch of hiking through super treacherous glacial moraine. We got to talk about what you mean by recording these crevices, because I think maybe people not, that don't follow you on social media fully understand what you mean. Because like I've seen some pictures of you lowering mics via rope down into these. This isn't just you pointing it from the top. If it's a little crack that's an inch wide, the mics are right there because you can't put them down in there. But... A lot of the bigger stuff, I was hanging stuff down into the crevasse. I climbed down into some a few times, but mostly it was hanging mics by their microphone cables down into the crevasses. There was a lot of that. And then there was a few instances of rigging some selfie sticks into a stereo bar and attaching the mics to the stereo bar, putting a little recorder in a dry bag, attaching that to the stereo bar and lowering the whole thing down 50, 7,500 feet down into the crevasse where you can actually get down and get the deep resonance that's down there. So... How much do you think the glacier melts down vertically in 24 hours? Like how many inches would you think? Bet you it's a lot more than I would think. I would think like millimeters, but the way you're framing that question, I'm assuming I'm wrong. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I would say six inches max. Yeah, it's like eight to 12 inches. And so it's like, it's really hard to leave stuff out there because everything's going to sink. We tried various techniques with things, but even if you take an ice screw which is just like an ice climbing screw. It's usually like a foot long or something, and you can screw that into the ice. That sort of can help you keep your gear there, but the problem is the the metal of the ice screw heats up more than the ice, and it melts itself out. And so and a lot of times I would just, I would chip a really flat spot, and then I would hang the mics off into the crevasse using the microphone cables. I would have the dry bag with the recorder and battery chipped out on a flat spot, and then I would put a rock on top of that and then just hope the thing didn't slide in. I've seen you post pictures of geophones that you brought on this trip. Do you want to talk about how that worked out for you? I had a scheme to, to, to stick to geophones or these long contact mics. I wanted to stick the geophones into the glacier and see if I could get any of these sub-bass sounds. So I had a quad rig of two geophones and two Sennheiser 8020s. And I was going to try to do it in parallel and mix them together. I thought the geophones come with this little spike that's on the end of it, and I thought I could just stick the spike in the glacier. And I talked to, and Nico's like, "No, you can't. You can't do that." 
for the reasons I just explained, which is it melts down 12 inches and the spike's only like two inches long. And he's also like the ice is ridiculously hard. You can't just stick a spike into it and you have to use an ice screw. And so we ended up mounting the geophones into an ice screw. So he'd screw the ice down and I would kind of tape the geophone to the ice screw. And that worked sort of well. It's still really hard to get a good connection because the ice screw melts out after a few hours. That was a fun experiment because you definitely can get some of these interesting pulsing sub bassy sounds and then you get the calving event from the 8020 and then you can mix that with the geophone and you get these pretty epic sounding um, booming events and so um, I had a couple of those we were down I don't know a couple hundred feet from the calving face but on the glacier we start hearing this crazy bass pulse I like, felt it in your chest first I was like Nico do we need to get out of here He's like, no, it's okay. We're, <laughs> we're, we're on the edge of the glacier. It doesn't actually move that much where we were. You, you feel the earthquake a little bit. I was like, what is, what's happening? And it was, it's very disconcerting. And then Nico starts walking around. We're trying to figure out where this base is, like this base pulse is coming from. And we get over and there's a big crevasse about 50, 50 feet from where I hooked up the geophones. And this huge pulsing sound is coming out. It was very localized though. So you get over and you stick your head down in and you start hearing this home, home, home. Wow. Home. It's like, it's basically this breath of the glacier sort of thing happening. And Nico said that there's a big river that's coming out underneath the glacier that's meltwater. And you had a giant Mulan, which is one of those waterfalls in the glacier. And he said the Mulan was falling down into the river probably and was creating these huge air bubbles that we're making these pulsing bass sounds and it's going home, home, home. <laughs> and, I, and I get so excited and I, and I try to, and I get some rigs set up, I get up a little drop rig set up and I, and I get it in there and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get 12 hours of this most musical breathing glacier sound. And it only did it for like 45 minutes and then it stopped and it didn't come back. Part of what's so cool about the glaciers is like you get these events that might just happen once, right? And then the glacier has changed enough, it shifted or something cracked. I happened to be in this one spot and I heard this amazing glacier breathing sound and I recorded a little bit. I got a few recordings of it and then it didn't, ha it didn't happen ever again. And so that's one of the coolest things about the glaciers is like every time I go out on them, something is different. The singing glacier pitches have changed. The crevasses are different. The acoustics are have changed. Sometimes you get these crazy random breathing glacier sounds. Yeah. So how did you approach like taking all of that recording and calling it down into a library that's like navigable and and useful? You know. Yeah. I mean the the ice xylophone stuff is that that's easier to call down because it's not as much stuff. You you can work through that at a somewhat, somewhat reasonable pace. The singing glacier stuff with the drones, that's a whole nother can of worms. 
I've, I've sorted it all now. I have 200 gigs of the droning glacier stuff. And I'm like, how do I cut that down? Because it's all pristine. And as I sort through all of these, I mean, they're still really rare. It's like you get may, maybe one thing every three or four hours. And then like sometimes they happen a lot. Sometimes they don't happen for 12 hours. And sometimes it's multiple days between some really big thing. The The last thing with, with the glaciers, the, the underwater iceberg sounds, and that's kind of this stuff I have more trouble describing because it's it's not like thunder or something. It's it's basically you put the mics in next to one of these icebergs and there's an astonishing amount of stuff happening underwater as the iceberg is melting. Some of them sound like kind of underwater rain with pinging and popping and booming and it's all ricocheting around in the underwater acoustic space. Next time I'm uh, talking to someone who's going to bring up the phrase uh, a drop rig, I'm going to be like, you don't know what a drop rig is. This guy's dropping, <laughs> literally dropping his rigs into ice crevices. <laughs> it's an amazing story. The pictures that you've been posting are really amazing. Yeah, thank you. ThomasRexBeverly.com. Awesome. Thank you for talking to us today. This is great. Yeah, thanks so much. Big thanks to Thomas Rex Beverly for telling us about his adventures on the glaciers. Head over to thomasrexbeverly.com to find the libraries he's made from these recordings. I want to send a big thanks to the lovely person who edited this episode, but they prefer to remain anonymous. You know who you are, and we really appreciate it. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring a talk with the sound team of the Cannes winner, Triangle of Sadness. Make an effort to see this film because it is a wild ride. On behalf of Renee Coronado, I'm Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening, everyone. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.